Thank you for tuning in to the Red Clinic Podcast. I'm Dr. Shwalin, licensed psychologist and specialist expert in treating eating disorders. Today, I'm going to do what I do best. I'm going to provide some education on topics related to eating disorder treatment. Specifically, what I want to talk about today is related to what I just spoke about last week. So last week, I talked a little bit about um, how to go to your child if you have some concerns and um, discuss concerns about maybe health problems or eating disorders specifically. And I talked a lot about just different communication approaches and utilizing assertive communication as the best approach when communicating any concern, but also concerns about an eating disorder to your child. Today is kind of part two to that. So what happens when you've, you know, implemented assertive communication and you've done everything that you possibly could do to the best of your ability and you've communicated the concerns that you have to your child and they continue to be in denial. Okay. So you told them what you were worried about and their response was, I don't have a problem. There is nothing going on with me and I have no idea what you're talking about. So as parents, we know that that can be a very common response to a lot of things that we might bring up to our child. And I want to talk specifically about what it means when we are dealing with somebody who likely has an eating disorder. So number one. I just want to put out there that with any mental health issue, including eating disorders, it is very likely that the person who is struggling with their, you know, with that issue, right, really has no clue that they are being affected by anxiety or depression or an eating disorder. It's very normal for the person who's experiencing it to not even realize that it's something that's causing issues in their functioning or causing problems in their relationships. It's kind of this whole idea of the disorder or the symptoms of the disorder get to the point where it feels normal or it's kind of one in the same with the person and they haven't been able to really step outside of that yet to understand like, hey, this actually doesn't have to be this way. So specifically with an eating disorder, one like anorexia or bulimia, we know that individuals who struggle with those types of eating disorders also have what we call cognitive distortions. And all that means is that the things that they think really are not accurate because a person with anorexia, for example, may look at themselves in the mirror and they would see someone who is maybe of normal weight or even perceive themselves to be overweight. But any one of us could look at that person and say, that's not the case at all. I mean, just from appearance, we can tell that that person's not of normal weight. They actually appear to be malnourished if they are, you know, that underweight. But someone struggling with anorexia is really going to see themselves in a distorted manner. Those cognitive distortions are real. They're a real part of the disorder. And so if someone is that far along in the development process of their eating disorder, they truly could believe that nothing's wrong, even when everyone else around them understands that there's definitely something going on. 
So when a child, you know, or anyone, even an adult, doesn't believe you or thinks you're crazy for even suggesting that there's a problem, it could potentially be because they truly do not see what you see. Like literally they do not see what you see. Okay. So I do want to put that out there that like instant denial, um, the conflict that might arise if you take a concern to someone who's truly struggling with an eating disorder it may be very difficult for them to jump on board with you and say, yeah, I'm definitely struggling. Now, this is really different from someone who is in denial because they're trying to keep it a secret, okay? Sometimes denial can be a symptom of the eating disorder, you know, just based on everything I just said. And then other times denial can be because the eating disorder is very skilled in keeping itself private and secretive. And so if you go and confront someone who has a lot to hide, they're going to take that approach and be in denial and do everything they can to convince you that you really don't know what you're talking about. So it's tough. It's really tough to like tell the difference, right? With your own child, even, um, especially just as a parent, you're not going to know unless you have training in eating disorders, truly how severe something is, Um, unless you get the assessment and you get some professionals involved to figure out, you know, is this so far, um, gone that my child really doesn't see what I see because it's part of that disorder or is this, um, something that my child understands they're aware of and they're trying to keep it a secret. Now, keep in mind when a child is trying to keep something a secret, especially with eating disorders, And if you do confront them on it, hey, I'm concerned about you or I'm worried, I've noticed a lot of weight loss or maybe I'm picking up on that you're not eating as much as you used to or whatever it is that you bring up to your child. And if they're working really hard to keep that quiet or as a secret, there can be a lot of shame that surrounds that secret, okay? So there may be a part of them that understands, you know, like what I'm doing is not okay. Or if people find out about this, they're going to judge me negatively. I may not be viewed the same way if they know this thing about me. So it can be very emotional to bring something to the surface when someone's truly not ready to do that, right? And so denial can be this like protective factor as well. So I'm saying all this because, you know, like I said last week, you have to be very careful and intentional with how you bring something up to your child when you are worried about their health and a potential eating disorder. You don't want to trigger them even further to the point where they shut down and then you lose them completely, right? That's every parent's worst nightmare, especially when we're talking to a teenager, right? Because it's already really hard for adolescents in general to open up to their parents about anything. So providing that non-judgmental space and kind of almost expecting denial at first is probably your best bet. I honestly have never heard a parent come to me and say, yeah, as soon as I brought it up to my child, they were on board and so excited that we were able to finally talk about it. (laughs) It's actually never the case. Um, What's more likely is that maybe the child is feeling relieved, but privately you know, like, okay, they notice, they see something's wrong and eventually they're not going to want to keep it a secret anymore. 
But if they have been keeping something like this a secret for a long time, it's going to take a while for them to start trusting and open up about it. So when, when we approach our children about concerns related to an eating disorder and they do respond with denial, it's usually for those two reasons. Okay. The first reason is they just can't see it because it's part of the disorder. And then the second reason is, well, they might know about it, but they are potentially keeping it a secret and have been for a very long time. And so if they're finally exposed, that whole process can be extremely nerve wracking and emotional and needs to be addressed carefully. So I want to talk about, you know, first, the first kind of denial, um, because it can have this this overarching effect on families and um, even systems. I mean, I just see it, I see it mostly in the whole family. So if, if the individual, for example, your child who has an eating disorder um, doesn't really know that they have one, and usually it's one parent, not both, who might have the concern, and then the rest of the family is like, you don't know what you're talking about, you know, don't be worried, they'll... They're fine. They eat or, you know, that just happened because they started sports this year. And so they kind of try to explain it away. So it's almost like multiple family members are in that same denial. And that's a very common occurrence when I see clients for the first time trying to figure out eating disorder treatment. So what are you supposed to do if, if you feel like, okay, I'm the only one in this house that sees you know, an issue here. I'm the mom or I'm the dad or I'm the sibling. And no one else seems to think it's an issue, but I just know something's not right. My gut instinct is telling me that this is a huge problem. If not um, addressed, could get worse. And I'm just so concerned. I need somebody to be on board, right? Well, it's really, really, um, I think, important for people to just understand that that eating disorders take on this isomorphic approach to, to everything, okay? And I know that's like such a clinical term that I just used, but it's, it's honestly one of my favorite things to talk about. So in isomorphism, this term, what does it mean? It's when we see trends repeat themselves like at different levels or in different systems, okay? So if you think about our society as a whole, um, you know, one of my most, um, just, just one of the things I think about, you know, in terms of the NIH government funding, that's what the NIH does. It provides government funding for different research out there in, in our society, in our world. Okay. If you look at NIH funding for something like the obesity epidemic in our country, right? you're going to see that funding is up in the billions or millions of dollars, okay? And every single year, it's actually billions now. So every single year, NIH is, is funding research in obesity, which is considered a medical condition. And there's a lot of wariness and, and, and fear around it, right? In the medical world and in our world in general. And they're funding this just to find ways to beat it and to overcome the epidemic, okay? But then if you go and look at how much funding is being provided for something like anorexia research or bulimia research, eating disorders research, 
it's in the $30 million range, and it's like that every year. So we're talking about billions of dollars in difference of what, what's ex, you know, what is prioritized, if you want to call it that. What is considered more important from a funding perspective, okay? So we see that at that level where maybe eating disorders are kind of brushed under the rug or they're not considered as serious. And then if you look at just kind of like in the population, there's a lot of myths about eating disorders, right? There are myths about how eating disorders really only affect young white girls in their 20s when we know actually that's not the case at all, that eating disorders don't discriminate and they affect individuals of all ages and all different ethnicities and cultural groups and socioeconomic status. Um, but if you think about it like that, those, those types of individuals are going to kind of keep it more of a secret. Hey, hush, hush, let's not talk about the eating disorder. Let's not let anyone know that this is a part of our family situation. Um, so if a family does know about an eating disorder in the family, they may want to treat it that way. So in like the family system level, you can see that happening. On the individual level, you can see it as well. So like I said, there's there are individuals who know they have an eating disorder, but they're going to try to do everything they can to keep it a secret. And so they're trying to do everything possible so that even their family members don't know about it. So let's not talk about it. Let's not go there. Let's not ask about it. Um you know, I heard that so-and-so, you know, might have been struggling with that, but it's not kosher to ask, so let's not even go there. So we're kind of given the message from like this big systemic level, like a cultural level, that eating disorders need to be kept quiet and not focused on. And if we know it's there, we kind of all ignore it, okay? And that's what that isomorphism is. So we kind of see that pattern being repeated like at larger levels and then even in smaller, more personal spaces. I always say, you know, in my clinic, we want to avoid isomorphisms. Um, and I talk to my clinicians about it all the time. My team is very aware of the threat of an isomorphism occurring. And I say that, you know, just to give another example of what this word really means, sometimes families may be in denial and, and they're still coming to us for treatment because they've been routed to us somehow, some way. And they may be in denial that recovery is even possible. They may say things about their own child, like my child just won't engage in strategies to feel better, or my child is lazy, or they're stubborn, or they're manipulative. And those are common things, you know, they happen. I mean, people get frustrated and Parents might say those things about their child, and part of the treatment is to help a parent understand this isn't about your child being manipulative. This is the fact that the eating disorder is manipulative, okay? Your, eat, the, your child's eating disorder is what makes them seem stubborn or manipulative or, or unresponsive. It is so easy, though, sometimes as a clinician to also get frustrated and say, okay, you know what? They're not responding, they're right. Their kid isn't responding. The family's not responsive. And then as a clinician, you go back to your team and you say, I don't know that this is going to work. And now all of a sudden what's happening is we're repeating that isomorphism. So we have to be really careful not to like fall for it, not to um, become a part of that mindset. So denial, I'm going to go all the way back to denial. 
Denial should not be a surprise for you if you're the person bringing up the concern when you're trying to talk to your child if you think that an eating disorder might be an issue for them. I would say you should just expect it. (laughs) And then if you don't get that, you do get more of a, hey, thanks mom or dad, I think you're right, then consider yourself extremely lucky. Consider yourself in a more advanced situation, um, one that one that has, you know, one that's maybe further along um, in terms of recovery than than maybe you originally thought. Another thing that I want to tell families about eating disorders is that it's really, really important to externalize it. So I kind of touched on this a second ago. We're in clinic, you know, we spend a lot of time as clinicians talking to our family members of the person with the eating disorder about this is not your child, it's the eating disorder. So I want you to also think about that, okay? If you're concerned about your child, I want you to think about what else is going on with them. Are are their relationships struggling? You know, is the parent-child relationship struggling? Is the feeling in the family kind of tense? Is it more like you're just kind of walking on eggshells and no one's really talking about it, but everyone knows there's something going on? Um, is your child um, isolating more? Do you notice more irritability or just kind of like short, shorter fused? Just kind of think like overall, what has happened in the last six weeks or six months or a year? And how is your child different than when you didn't have concerns about the eating disorder? So maybe there's a time in their life, maybe it was a few years ago that you can remember they were fine. They were actually really happy. They had friends. They were doing well in school. They enjoyed being around the family. Um, They were super creative and they were just a joy to be around. That's what I ask parents and clients to try and remember. Who were you before this eating disorder set in? Because that's who you really are. That's your authentic self or that's who your child is authentically when the eating disorder hasn't taken over. And so learning to externalize that eating disorder, understanding that this is not who they are, it's just something that they're going through, is so important. Because if you also have a family member who's in denial, you can kind of do that comparison. Like, hey, do you remember just a couple months ago or just a year ago when we weren't seeing any of this stuff? We have to remember who our child is and not blame it on them for what they're going through right now. But we have to open up our eyes, right? And do something about the fact that there's something really going on here. And that's how you can kind of get through a family, get through to a family member who may be in denial if you're trying to get their support. Um, now I was, I was recently asked, you know, have you ever seen a client who may actually go along with it, but they're still very clearly in denial? And that's kind of another form of this. So what happens when you have a child who you just absolutely know is not well, and you as the parent get them the treatment they need, and the child is the type of personality that's going to check the boxes and do whatever you say, because maybe they're people pleasing, or maybe they're just really smart and they know, let me grit you know, grin and bear it. Let me white knuckle through this process. And then as soon as they take their eyes off of me and they start feeling more relaxed, I'll just get right back to it. And that's exactly the kind of client that I'm used to working with. 
especially with kids. With kids, it's really hard sometimes because everyone around them may know that there's an issue, but they're not willing to see it yet. And so because they are kids, their parents are the ones who get them into treatment. They kind of throw their child into the situation of, okay, we're going to give you everything you need. Now just get better. But if your child is not an active participant, right, because they really don't buy in, they very likely could just white knuckle through it. They may start eating again. They may go through the treatment. They may start looking like they're making progress. And it's all for the end goal of being able to get everybody's eyes off of them so that they can eventually revert back to what's most comfortable, which may be engaging in the eating disorder. And so that is absolutely a part of some people's process. I see it frequently. And the cool thing about it, though, is that it's just a part of the process. It's exposure to treatment. It's exposure to feeling what it feels like to be re-nourished. And it's tons and tons of opportunity for therapy and education for the family and for the individual who has the eating disorder. And so what we're doing is we're laying some groundwork. And what happens at that point is now they're in someone's care. There is a professional who's following them or maybe a whole team of people that are working on their case. And so even if, let's say, they get to a point where It looks like they're making progress. What we know in the eating disorder world is that the body never lies. And so even if someone's sitting there saying, yes, and of course, and I will do it this way, right? And I'm feeling much better, thank you. Eventually that eating disorder will get to the point of being active again. And so if someone's saying, you know, I did eat all my lunch yesterday, but then we weigh them at the next session, we're going to know that that wasn't the case. Or I'm not restricting, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing, or I'm not exercising, I'm, I'm, I'm sedentary because you told me I needed to be. Eventually, all of that gets caught, right, when we are monitoring their physical health. So that's part of just normal eating disorder treatment is a good multidisciplinary team approach where their medical and physical health is being consistently monitored because the body doesn't lie. So again, lab work, being weighed, taking vitals, all of that is part of normal follow-up. There are other ways though. There are psychological ways to help someone with internal motivation. And so we know, especially with an eating disorder like anorexia, for example, where someone may present at first as more malnourished, that food, honestly, a variety of food, is just such a perfect medicine. And it's exactly what they need. And so once someone becomes re, uh, re-nourished, so they're just getting the benefits of having um, healthy amounts of food and healthy types of foods, they can start thinking a lot more clearly. And so that that one-way road that they may have taken in denial, they're able to actually start opening up their thought process. And they can think more abstractly and they're starting to track and they understand more of what you're trying to say. So eventually, after someone who has an eating disorder becomes nutritionally rehabilitated, and this is really for any kind of eating disorder. I mean, even with um, bulimia or atypical anorexia or binge eating disorder, 
as soon as someone is regularly eating, so I'm talking like three meals a day, several snacks a day, they're hydrated, um, they're doing it all within like the prescription of what a dietitian would provide. And this is a dietitian with very specific training and eating disorders, right? They start to feel a lot better. It's amazing what regular um, um, access to food does to our brain and to our physical health. So when they start thinking clearly, they start having more energy, they start feeling better, and they have this overall new sense of control over food, um, the therapy starts really having more of an impact on them. So it's, it's a process. We have to be patient. We have to let their mind, mind and body heal, right, from a nutritional aspect. And then they really start to get the benefit from therapy. And so someone who's completely in denial at first over time can truly have an internal sense of motivation and desire to get better. In the beginning, though, without that internal desire to get better, treatment providers know how to handle that. Usually they implement some kind of positive behavior management system. They're going to try to find what motivates that person and then use it as a way to help encourage them to um, make good, healthy choices for themselves. So at first, it may be completely external. Or sometimes I hear kids all, you know, say, um, well, I'm just doing this because I don't want my parents to be mad at me. Or I don't want to upset them anymore. Um, in those kinds of situations, I always advise parents, like, hey, let's use it right now. Let's, I'll take it. If it's, if it's what... If it's what's going to work in order to get them to uh, participate, even though this is not of their own free will per se, I know that the side effects of being well-nourished and making different choices for their body are going to eventually turn that child's mindset around. And so, again, it's all part of the process. So now what if a kid does what um, they're supposed to do and as soon as they possibly can, they go right back to the eating disorder. Uh, they start restricting again or exercising or they become obsessive, whatever it may be. Um, that's when I said earlier, that's just a part of someone's process and it's okay. And sometimes relapse. So maybe if they were hospitalized and then after a short amount of time of being out of the hospital, they have to go back. Um, sometimes relapse is a part of it. And I've seen many times on the second or even the third treatment where the child finally has that moment of, okay, like I'm finally going to do this and it's for me and no one else. And I'm not fighting you anymore. I'm going to start fighting my eating disorder now. So that's it. That's what I have to say about denial. Good luck, parents, talking to your children about your concerns. Um, and I hope to see you next time.